Copycat, let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest edition. It's Wednesday, February 22nd, 2017. On today's show, Big Little Lies is a new and steamy woman of a certain age, murder, mystery, melodramedy of manners. It's on HBO, and then, and this is one of those stark contrasts I've come to love doing the show over the years. Silence is a late period Scorsese, a meditation on faith and hubris. It stars Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver as Jesuit missionaries in feudal Japan. And finally, fitness guru Richard Simmons has disappeared. He has not been seen in public for a couple of years. A new podcast explores the mystery behind a missing Richard Simmons. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. Julia, uh, I didn't know you had a a little comedy bit involving cricket noises. We we were just talking about the silence of silence, and it opens and closes on extensive crickets, although I guess they're Japanese cicadas. But anyway, howling crickets was my main takeaway from that movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Dana, do you, have a, do you have a howling cricket impression, or is this just... The howling cricket of God's implacability. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm joined also by Dana Stevens, who's uh, Slate's uh, film critic. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. Um, Julia, before we uh, before we get going here, we have business, I would assume. Yes, four pieces of business today. Number one, we are doing a live show in Washington, D.C. on April 19th, and tickets for that show are available now at slate.com slash live. Uh, they're exclusively available to Slate Plus members for a short period, and then they'll be opening up to everybody. So please come out. We have never yet done a show in Washington, but now now that Obama is gone, we're ready finally to show up. Uh, so we will be there and we can't wait. Uh, get your tickets now. Uh, number two in our Slate Plus segment this week, we are going to talk about driverless cars. I very much doubt this will be the last time we talk about driverless cars. They are frequently discussed in the tech press, but less so in the culture realm. And we will make our first foray into uh, anticipating a uh, very different driving future. So if you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can join at slate.com slash culture plus. Uh, joining will give you access to ad-free Slate podcast feeds, bonus segments of our show and other shows every week, and of course, uh, make you a supporter of Slate and the journalism that we do. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. I should just note that I'm going to sit out the first segment now that my husband works for HBO. Uh, I'm not talking about HBO shows anymore. So Willa will ably fill the chair and I will rejoin you guys for segment two. And then finally, uh, we are still reading 1984. Hopefully you are reading 1984 as well. We have settled on a date for discussing that. Uh, our discussion will appear on our March 8th show. So stay tuned. Still time to uh, pick that, pick up that book. Or listen to it. I was going to pop in and say that I am both reading and listening to the audiobook, which is on Audible. The unabridged version is read by Simon Preble, who has a great 
British voice and seems to really enjoy reading George Orwell's prose. So if you feel like listening instead of reading, you can go listen to 1984. You got my hopes up that it was going to be that other Simon reader that we were so excited well, about. Well, there's now two amazing Simons who read lots of audiobooks. I looked up his name and he has a bunch of I'm titles a Simon to his name snob. Well. With Who's the other one? Simon, Simon Vance. Vance. Oh, Dreamboat. Ugh, if it's not Simon Vance, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Get away from me with your Simons. I will go download that immediately, probably. Uh, okay, that's a good tip. All right, so uh, 1984 in two weeks. All right, let's start the show. Big Little Lies is the new HBO miniseries. It stars Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, Laura Dern, and Shailene Woodley. They're mothers in Monterey, California, which I didn't know this until now. is apparently a world of spite, envy, gossip, and all enveloping upper bougie affluence. It surrounds them all sort of the way the ocean does. Uh, we know that someone, but not exactly who, among their cohort has been killed during a school-sponsored trivia night, and the series essentially tells the backstory behind the murder. It digs into the dirty underwear drawer of the Oceanside gentry, into their troubled marriages, uh, gender and parenting politics. It's sexy, fun, and a dramedy of manners. Um, Why don't we listen to a clip? All right. So just to set this up, the clip that we're going to hear is Reese Witherspoon, one of the, I guess you would say the most alpha of all the alpha moms in this show, who uh, discovers that her daughter, her teenage daughter, is driving with a teenager who's texting and proceeds to give the driver Reese Witherspoon hell. Motherfucker. <sighs> Chloe Adeline McKenzie. You were thinking it. Because I was scared. Do you want to see how teenagers die? This is how. This young lady in front of me is driving and texting at the same time. You're going to die. Oh, it's just... I'll be right back. You're dead. Excuse me. You must stop. You're going to kill yourself for some. Mom, what is your problem? Abigail, what are you doing? You were supposed to be on the bus. Pick me up. You know how I feel about you driving with texters. It is worse than drinking and driving. Get out of the car. I'm not getting out of the car. We're three blocks from school, okay? Fine. If I catch you driving and texting again, I will find your mother and I will throw this at her. All right. Well, we're joined by um, Sleet's TV critic, Willa Paskin. Willa, welcome back to the show. Hi. Willa, I thought you had a wonderful framing device for your review of the show, which was really to get into Reese Witherspoon and um, the origin of her career, um, you know, as a, as a kind of A-list actress in the character Tracy Flick from the wonderful movie Election, and how that was both a launching pad, but also something of a, a rigid constraint on how we perceive Reese Witherspoon against which she's reacted, right? She hasn't really taken a role like that since. And here she gets to revisit some of that, um, but in a kind of fun, great and fun way in this TV show. Really curious to know what you thought of it. I actually really enjoyed this TV show. Um, I think that it it sort of has like everything else aside, which we can get into. It has some really great, fully developed characters um, and not in kind of the that's always what actresses and actors say about a part. But this actually felt like the kind of people you could sort of have like lunch with friends and talk about as if they were real people, like get into what's going on with them. Um, and I think the character that Reese plays, um, Madeline Martha McKenzie, is sort of the the most fully developed character in the show, which is that she is like totally a Tracy flick and you sort of come in, they sort of introduce her to you in that scene you just heard and you are expecting to find her basically unbearable. Um, And then she is kind of unbearable, but in this very sort of charming and interesting and kind of a secretly nice way. Like she's Tracy flick, but nice or Tracy flick, but all grown up and not, you know, just an ambitious 
monster. Um, it's funny because over like Sin's election has existed, which is almost 20 years now, you see things all the time and you're like, that's a Tracy Flick type. And I've even in other reviews talked about how characters are like a Tracy Flick, but with a good edit, you know, which is the reality TV Hmm. term for like seeing seeming sympathetic, like um, uh, the mother on Modern Family, who's played by Claire Bowen, is kind of a Tracy Flick with like a good edit. And this is also sort of like a Tracy Flick with um, with a good edit or with um, a more nuanced, sympathetic edit. Mm. Uh, Will, am I right in thinking there are two pretty dominant aspects to the show? I've seen two episodes. I thought the second one was much better than the first, for what it's worth. But we can we can get into that. Um, I think the second one may have hooked me in a way that the first one didn't. But the the first is it's sort of a a, a kind of as I've said a couple times a drama of manners or, or uh, built around school drop off. Right, that something about school drop off just kind of is or has become the locus of American manners where people's relationship to their own and other people's social class, gender, uh, you know, their intergenerational hopes and despairs are suddenly intensified and play out on a stage in which um, all the actors converge. And then um, and then, secondly, the drama of manners is a little bit about how marriage has changed, right? The wives are very, 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 I mean, this is a show built around four really gifted really powerful actresses each in their own way and the story is built around the story of the of the wives and wives have become different players in marriages now like the issue of who works who makes money who has power who has sexual power um is is uh integral to each one of these relationships so there's that kind of treatment of social ambiguity in an interesting way juxtaposed with uh a mystery who's been killed we don't even know which i think is clever and then obviously who did it um how do you think those things two to go together as the series develops well i should say so this this mini series which is seven episodes long is based on a novel um by leanne moriarty of the same name that i think i mean it's possible i've seen six of the seven episodes it's possible they change the ending but from what i've seen i suspect it's very closely based on that novel you know mysteries at this moment in time are like extremely sticky they're really in quote unquote you know so i think that the fact that this is wedded to a mystery was probably part of the saleability of it not that if nicole kidman and reese witherspoon are attached to your project you can't sell it but um i don't think the mystery stuff is particularly good like the compared to um, sort of the comedy of manners or the dramedy of manners or the tragedy of manners that's sort of unfolding, which is to say that um, it's not just that tonally it's totally different because the mystery sort of, it unfolds, we're sort of in two timelines basically where all our protagonists are in the past showing what happened leading up to this trivia night, this murder. And then in the present, we're sort of seeing all um, the Greek chorus of the town who are kind of the caddy hoi polloi who've been playing way too much attention to all of these movie stars. Um tell us in in sort of excruciating detail and bitchy detail everything that happened. And that has a sort of satirical edge that I actually think in a way the rest of the show um, doesn't quite. But, but even more than the sort of um, juxtaposition of those two kind of divergent tones, it's like the show doesn't quite commit to making you care about who the murderer is. It doesn't, it's not like a whodunit in the sense of like, you can piece together the clues and you're following along. Like it's not a true detective sort of situation. It's more like, it's just, um, it has a surprise waiting for it at the end. There's not, it's not really suspenseful. And actually through six episodes, you still don't even know who's been murdered. So like, 
starting around like episode three or four or five, it's like you're not really in it for that. You know, like it, it doesn't mm-hmm. it, it's not it is a recurring device, but it just is not it's not foregrounded or like interesting enough to the people making it in a certain way yeah. to kind of yeah. have the propulsion that a mystery, you know, ought to have or or if you're into mysteries that you would like it to have. I felt that that might be the case. Dana, you you stuck with this longer than you typically might have. Well, I've watched three episodes and I'm about a quarter of the way into the fourth. And I have to say, I will go Willow one better and say that the murder mystery business is downright annoying. And I'm sick of it already. Not even knowing after the first episode who the person was who had been killed got on my nerves. Because I, that, that whole kind of, you know, slow cooking, make everybody wait. I mean, it, you have to be so artful to do it. And you have to work so hard to make us care. And this show seems completely uninterested in the mystery plot to the to the point that the woman who's investigating, I guess she's a police detective or something. She has no name. She has no background. She has no character. She just pops up every now and then sometime in the future, uh, taking depositions from these Greek chorus people who I also agree are weak non-characters. And so that there's such a divergence between that boring mystery stuff in which nothing ever gets revealed and who cares, and the really pretty interesting drama unfolding among the characters. And so maybe I stuck with it, not because I wanted to hear that secret revealed, but just because everything else that was happening seemed more to the point. Well, I think that mm-hmm. is why you would stick with it. It's like, as a goes on they put the mystery off so much that you just are like oh this is a character piece and i'm like in it to see what happens to these characters this mystery thing is like kind of weird extraneous fluff but that that gimmick in itself made me resent the (laughs) the the creators of the show in some way i mean i feel like there were two different forces pushing against each other creative forces in this and that you could tell who had what kind of input right because the director at least of most of the episodes i think is jean-marc valet who steve directed dallas buyers club which you loved and wild and wild with with reese witherspoon and uh and so when i saw his name pop up i thought great a jean-marc valet tv series is going to be interesting and then written by david e kelly of mm-hmm. what Ally McBeal, Boston Public, yes. but I think very, that- very TV sort of TV writer, and I can't help but feel that these cheesy Greek chorus people popping up to give depositions to the utterly characterless policewoman come from the David E. Kelly world. But I, again, it is based on a novel, so like it is based on a novel that has this murder arc that's you know a big part of it, and also I think while we may enjoy watching. Uh, TV drama with featuring great actresses about like characters with complicated, totally privileged lives. Like the mystery part does give it a hook. And and actually there have been a series of sort of like the affair, the slap, divorce to a certain extent that are these shows about this kind of affluence um, Mm -hmm. that do not have like. I mean, I guess the slap sort of tried to have this kind of hook that end up being so irritating. <laughs> and mm. and I and I'm not sure that this mystery has like rescued the show from being irritating, but there is um there is something about like thinking about being entertaining, even if the way that you're most trying to be entertaining is is the failed part right. of your show that right. might like sort of trickle out in a in a helpful way. I guess, I guess. I mean, to, to me, it still was by far the weakest part. And I was way more entertained by the scenes of Shailene Woodley, Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman just hanging out bitching in a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Some of those are amazing. There is a coffee shop scene that is played very casually in episode two that made me think almost no matter what, I'm going to follow this to the end. It was really in the second episode that some of the characterizations will, as you say, really deepened, especially of uh, the Reese Witherspoon character. And you suddenly see that this person is in addition to being an irritating meddler, is quite 
emotionally alive to other people and interesting in herself and has an impulse to do the right thing, even though she executes it very often poorly and self-centeredly. Like she's just a, she's a mixed picture, a very well-drawn, sharply drawn, uh, ambiguous and mixed character. And that, that to me was, that's, that's not a small achievement. And Dana, I'm with you completely. I find the um, murder mystery uh, so far completely extrinsic. Um, and kind of irritating, but I'm with it. I think I'm. I'm think I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna drill down to the very uh, bottom of this uh, love hate watch. I think. All right, Willa, you you're my Virgil when it comes to the television. Uh, I find you supremely um, enjoyable, but also re- enjoyable, but also reliable critic in these matters. Should I stick stick with it? Totally, you should. And also, I mean, Nicole Kidman like comes on later and is sort of as um, supremely Nicole Kidman-esque in a good way as Reese is Reese Witherspoon-esque in a good way. It just um, it just takes a few more episodes for her. Oh, and we're forgetting about develop. Laura Dern, who you should watch in a Verizon commercial or anything she ever does. <laughs> and who has the part of like a kind of... She has the least sympathetic part, Laura Dern. She's yes, plays like, um, but But even she, you come to understand her. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you completely. Four actresses doing great work. I mean, the one real um, problem with the show is that there is a fifth female lead who's played by Zoe Kravitz. um, And she is like wildly underserved. She's like a completely underdeveloped character. And there are plot reasons for that. But she is also the only person of color who's like meaningful in the show sort of in any real way. And it sticks out just in a show where everyone is so full to have her be so um, such an absence, even though I think it is a kind of like foolish artistic choice not just like complete um blindness yeah i don't disagree all right well the show is big little lies it's on hbo uh i think we're getting three thumbs not maybe entirely vertical but but certainly close enough mine is curious to propped know. on a book it'll stay up <laughs> <laughs> we're eager to hear what you think of it at facebook.com slash culture and willa paskin slate's tv critic willa always really an enormous pleasure to have you on the show thanks for coming in thanks for having me Silence is the new Martin Scorsese picture. It's based on a novel by Shusako Endo. It stars Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver as Portuguese Jesuit missionaries in 17th century Japan. Uh, there, I'll be frank, there's no quick way to summarize this picture. Uh, it's a quest movie. They're in search of a priest, their beloved mentor, played by Liam Neeson, who's disappeared into Japan, hasn't been seen or heard from in a while. But it's also a deep, prolonged, some might say, meditation on faith, God, suffering, and the hubris of all of the above. Why don't we listen to a clip? What we hear here is the voice of a Japanese convert to Christianity who is about to be interrogated by uh, the Japanese regime. And one of the proofs that they frequently ask for is for uh, Japanese people to step on what's called a fumie, which is an image of Christ. The devout will not step or, as it's rendered here, trample on the image of Christ and thus will be identified and then can be punished as the regime tries to stamp out Christianity and Japanese society. Um, And so here uh, a townsman is uh, asking for guidance on what to do if he's presented with this test of faith. And one of the priests, played by Andrew Garfield, says trample and the other priest, played by Adam Driver, says no, you must not. If we are forced to trample on the Lord, on the for me, you must pray for courage, Mokichi. But if we do not do what they want, there can be danger for everyone in the village. They can be put in prison, taken away forever. 
What shall we do? Tremble. Tremble. It's all right to tremble. What are you saying? You can't. All right, Dana. Well, um, it was... Uh... I think we were going to do this either way, but you had suggested one reason to do this, compelling reason to do it, is that you felt as though this film were a, possibly a farewell love letter to cinema by Martin Scorsese, in addition to being many other things. Um, talk a little bit about that and how you felt about the movie. Yeah, I mean, I wanted us to do this this movie in a way to, to champion it, which is a funny thing to say about a, a, a huge Martin Scorsese movie of this scale, which certainly you know doesn't lack for... I guess, name recognition, but it, it has been sort of overlooked. It didn't do well at the box office at all, as a lot of two hour and 40 minute long movies about faith and the void might tend to not do. And somewhat surprisingly, it got almost no Oscar nominations. In fact, it was only nominated for Best Cinematography. Rodrigo Prieto, who's a cinematographer who's worked with Scorsese for a long time, did an incredible job on that. And I think it deserves it. But I also just thought it deserved more recognition from from people who, whether they're interested in Scorsese or not. You know, personally, the last, I would say, 10 to 12 years of Martin Scorsese movies, maybe even going further back than that, have seemed to me very late period and that he sort of gets more and more Baroque and encrusted. And I was amazed that this movie really manages to do the, just the opposite. I thought very effectively. It's a title silence. is very fitting. It's very stripped down. There's, I don't think, any music that isn't being produced on screen. I don't remember there being any sort of extra, extra diegetic music at all, just those crickets that Julia imitated earlier. And, you know, really long stretches of the ocean and the silence and people praying and, you know, these these two young priests hiding out from the authorities that are looking for them. And it had this kind of barrenness that felt like, yeah, that it felt like it might be some spiritual moment for Scorsese himself to be making this movie, to be sort of stripping away a lot of the questions that have obsessed him throughout his career, including faith, down to their most basic essence. And even though there are flaws that can be picked in this movie, and maybe you guys will pick them, to me it was it was an unqualified success and a, a beautiful film. It's definitely beautiful. I w I'm, I'm glad that it got nominated for its cinematography. It looks incredible. It's entirely, um, the, or the first, you know, two hours and 15 minutes of it are almost totally bleached uh and it was very long but to me the length flew by i don't know i mean I, this kind of long movie is the kind of long movie i can tolerate as opposed to sort of the long talky epic movie that blabs on and on i felt like this movie had a meditative kind of openness at its center that made it enjoy not enjoyable is not the right word but that made it that made its length feel right even though it's full of scenes of suffering and torture and all kinds of awful things happen in it there's a feeling of sort of peace at its center do you know what i'm talking about at all steve I experienced this movie very differently from you, Dana, which isn't to say that I um, didn't uh, admire it in many respects, but to me, it felt more like um, a cross between a spaghetti Western and the interior of Mel Gibson's psyche. That, um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's... Mel Gibson, it, come on. The, Mel, well, Mel the, Gibson enjoys suffering so much more than Martin Scorsese does. There's not a sense of kind of sadistic, we're going to put you I, through this. I, I don't disagree, but there's... Um, I, 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 I impute no sadism to the makers of, of this movie at all whatsoever, but there is a sense in which elements of the drama fall into place only around bodily pain. The bodily pain is the is the organizing structural concept of this movie, which is then about faith, thematically about faith. I mean, the idea is these guys go into the thicket of, you know, feudal Japan, uh, into a Buddhist uh, 
and very closed society in an attempt to convert it. Now, right away, I confronted problem number one, which may have nothing to do with the movie and everything to do with me. But but I thought, well, you know, finding oneself in Christ may be inherently admirable, but proselytizing um, others, especially racial others, in favor of the image and ideal of Christ, especially when there's a deep and ancient uh, religious and cultural tradition there in the first place that in many ways you're asking to be eradicated. Um, I understand that the movie's in some respect about this uh, dynamic. Nonetheless, it made me not, one doesn't, one doesn't enter into its own logic in an uncomplicated way. Um, the second impediment was Andrew Garf- Garfield's hair, um, which is swooping uh, and gelatined and kind of sculptural. It's like a, uh, it's almost like the old JFK terminal, right? It's like got this kind of architectural, you know, uh, swoop and curvature to it, which didn't seem to me to be out of feudal Japan or uh, Portugal from whence he hails. I had trouble personally seeing Garfield as the vehicle for this kind of passion story, like a really deep Christian passion story. Um, and then over and over and over again, the motif of the movie upon which almost the entire entirety of the substance of the plot rests is essentially, you know, there are a bunch of covert Christians in in Japan who've been successfully converted for whom these padres, uh, Driver and Garfield are, I mean, it's belittling to call them rock stars to them. That's not what it really is about. They're they're vehicles of salvation uh, and, and taken as vehicles of salvation. They need to be hidden from the authorities. Faith needs to be hidden from the authorities. When the authorities discover either these padres or the faith. There are then a series of violent trials, like increasingly repulsively violent trials by which essentially a um, uh, ultimatum or a dilemma is presented to Garfield in particular. Are you going to let these human beings suffer this earthly torment in the name of your faith, which is an incursion in our culture, or are you going to relent? And all you need to do is, is renounce you know, your mission here in Japan and your faith in Christ by saying 10 syllables, and we won't literally burn alive X number of people or crucify them or whatever. And that's the moral calculus of the film. I found that very, very, very hard to um, uh, stick with enthusiastically, even though in many respects, the movie is both deep and beautiful. But doesn't that seem also like it's a historically, I mean, you say that, that Garfield is not sort of historically accurate in, in his hairdo. I mean, I think that the, the idea that hundreds of years ago, there were people who for whom these kinds of choices yes. were real and, and vibrant and personal is really gotten across by this this movie. And I, I do somewhat agree that just the familiarity of Andrew Garfield and, and Adam Driver from their other vehicles, I would have rather seen two unknown Portuguese actors, yes, right? I agree. Um, and I understand that you need to get stars to get your movie made. And I actually think Andrew Garfield doesn't amazing job with that part, which is an extremely demanding part. But there is some distraction with the sort of modernity crushing up against um, old values in this movie. But I think to a really impressive degree, this movie puts us in a different historical time space, in a different historical mind space where those questions become real. Yeah. I mean, I read a couple of reviews of this film after I saw it that offered the critique of like, oh, my God, another white savior movie, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, my God, snarky internet, shut up. Like, that is the point of the movie. That is what the movie is about. Like, most of the Japanese characters in this movie seem rendered in some ways with more depth and humanity than Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield. Like, 
that is not this movie's problem at all. I guess I'll split the difference on how alien the motives of of the two priests, Rodriguez and Garupe, are, which is that it is it does take a lot to get used to the idea that your main point of empathy into this movie are going to be these proselytizing priests. On the other hand, I do come out feeling like I understood their worldview and also that the movie comes down in my view. And I think there's probably different interpretations and we can have an argument here, but the movie seems to weigh in against them and against their naivete. Yeah, I think that that it's true to the, that to the extent the movie's interested in weighing in on either side, it it takes the side of of the Japanese and not the the Portuguese priests. But I would just you you and Steve keep using this word proselytize, and I would just point out that there's not their mission in Japan is not to convert or to proselytize anyone. There are these communities of faith in Japan that are in hiding because they're afraid of persecution by the state, and their mission there is essentially to find Liam Neeson, the priest who's disappeared into Japan. And while they're there, they sort of give aid and and blessings and take confessions from these already Catholic little groups of, of hidden Japanese villagers. So it's not really true that it's 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 their job to go and turn Japanese people Christian. No, but I think that's slightly semantic. Like the, the Christian yeah. communities they're serving have only been Christian for not more than 100 years, I think, at that point. And part of what, you know, the argument in the clip we heard was, you know, should you, is it okay to publicly perform an act that could be interpreted as a renunciation of Christ in order to save your life and the lives of your family and village? And that's like, a subject of deep uh, theological debate as opposed to a question that has an obvious answer. Uh, all right. And we should say that the question explicitly tor- torments the conscience of Garfield, especially. I'm just a foreign visitor who brought disaster. That's what they think of me now, he says. I mean, they they see themselves, they're not unconscious to the interpretation of their presence as, as a form of, of poison. Um, Dana, I, I, I want to return to you um, because I'm very interested in this idea of uh, not just the movie in itself and the story that it tells, um, but where it comes towards the end of a master's career and um, how you interpret it in, in relative to Scorsese's work. You know, I think it's worth mentioning something about the production history of this movie, which Scorsese has wanted to make since 88, since The Last Temptation of Christ came out, when he read this novel by Shusuko Endo and decided, I need to make this movie. It took him all this time to actually get the script, get the funding, and get the cast together and make it. I guess the closest thing he's made to it in terms of subject matter would be The Last Temptation of Christ, a very different and much busier kind of movie, but also a meditation on individuality and suffering and faith and sacrifice and uh, questions that also come up in his mob movies, frankly. I mean, there's not really a Martin Scorsese movie that isn't in some way about faith and sacrifice and and the moral quandary of the individual faced with an, an evil world. And all of those things just ha- seem to be boiled down to this essence in this movie. I mean, the filmmakers that came to mind, it didn't feel like a Scorsese movie to me. It almost felt like a Scorsese reflection on an Ingmar Bergman movie or a Robert Brisson movie, you know, something, a, a film. Oh, or Kurosawa, right? I mean, isn't he also paying some homage to one of his masters? I guess so, although there's not, I don't quite see the action side in this for, for the for mm-hmm. the Kurosawa, but I know that Ugetsu, the Mizuguchi movie that contains a lot of um, misty boats crossing rivers as we see <laughs> over and over in this movie, was a big influence, and that Rodrigo Prieto, the cinematographer, watched that movie along with Scorsese, thinking about, you know, how to, how to use natural light and how to shoot these water scenes. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm, I'm answering that question all over the place, Steve. But to me, it is, a, it is a, an exciting and interesting mystery that this is the movie Scorsese wants to make at this moment. 
the movie is Silence. It's from Martin Scorsese. Uh, check it out. If you've seen it, you're going to have opinions about it that are not shallow. We'd love to hear what those are. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right, moving on. Missing Richard Simmons is a new hit podcast. It tells the story of the fitness guru and media mogul, Richard Simmons, who disappeared from public view, it turns out, uh, about two years ago. This was after 40 years of teaching aerobics and building out of his distinctive hortatory squeal what amounted to a fitness and media empire. Uh, the podcast is a portrait not only of a shrewd entrepreneur, but also of a humane and complex man. And it paints this portrait along the way to asking a terrific, what's known as a reader question, which is where did he go? Apparently people don't know. The show is created and narrated by Dan Taberski, a former Daily Show producer. Why don't we listen to a clip? His gym is called Slimmons, and Richard's been teaching his class here for 40 years. I show up and pay my 12 bucks to the woman in shiny tights and grab a spot in the back row. It doesn't take long for things to get weird, because in less than 30 minutes, I find myself bare-chested, surrounded by step-clapping middle-aged women as Richard wipes the sweat off my torso with my t-shirt and then shoves it down his shorts. The entire class is 90 minutes of that. Turns out 64-year-old Richard Simmons is hilarious and so freaking loud and foul-mouthed like you would not believe. He cries twice. He does an incredibly offensive Indian accent. And he tells a story about the time he ran out of an Audrey Hepburn horror movie, fell, and broke a rib. All this while Rihanna blasts from the speakers, followed by Streisand, followed by a song he's written himself about Iraq war vets. I'm instantly and completely all about Slimmons. Uh, Julia, this is a very, very well-produced, very sharply delivered uh, delight uh, so far. Um, what do you make of it? I enjoyed it. I will continue to listen to it. I feel slightly confounded by the usual serialized storytelling questions of like, how much do they know and why don't they just fucking tell us what they know, mm. especially mm-hmm. because this is a fairly public and prominent story. I mean, I was talking to a couple folks this weekend about it. And some people are like, oh, yeah, Richard Simmons missing, the evil housekeeper, et cetera. And then other people are like, Richard Simmons is missing? What? And this will work much better for the latter group of people than the former. Yes. Um, and if you've been following the news at all, uh, you know that he's been missing for some time, that there were some rumors that perhaps his housekeeper was like holding him hostage, that it was checked. I mean, there's just I haven't ever looked into this or Googled it, but just through ambient I don't know, being on the internet for the last few years, I was aware of the vague contours of the story. And so in you know, one of the early episodes, they go to Richard Simmons' house and stake it out, and they have an encounter with the housekeeper. And in the back of my head, I'm like, the housekeeper, right? What's the deal with the housekeeper? Um, but they sort of don't tip their hand on that. And that kind of faux naivety just bothers me. Um, but I recognize that I'm spend a lot of time on the internet. I'm in the camp of people who knew nothing about this, so I'm pretty hooked. But Dana, what do you think? Do you think there's a little, what'd you make of it? Did you like it? You're going to keep listening. But also, is there a little bit of uh, narrative ledger domain um, in not letting us know what they know right away? Or is that just good storytelling? I mean, I was also in the club of knowing nothing about Richard Simmons having disappeared. So that in itself is a great premise for a podcast, right? Especially in the first episode when Dan Taberski, as we heard, gives a little background on his own relationship with Richard Simmons. And on the unusual degree of intimacy that Richard Simmons had with people who took his exercise class uh, for over this 40-year period that, that he taught it. Um, so so all that background was fascinating. But once they start investigating the mystery, 
I felt a lot of irritation, irritation that I probably would not have felt without having heard all the first season and most of the second season of Serial when I started to get annoyed with the same exact thing that this Richard Simmons podcast does, which is, as Julia says, coyly meet out information drip by drip, drip by drip so that they can keep you listening for next week and also do really, really a lot of scene making out of the making of the podcast itself. You know, in Serial, how you would periodically hear Sarah Koenig, the narrator and producer, driving around and sort of piecing out the, the possibilities of their, their various theories about whether this murder occurred or not and under what circumstances. And sometimes that just got to feel sort of self-indulgent to me. Do we really have to hear their every conversation in the car? Can't they boil it down to the stuff that we need to know? There was just a little bit of self-admiration in the way that podcast was put together that started to irritate me. And somehow when the stakes are lower, right? I mean, we know that Richard Simmons is not dead. Whatever is happening is some sort of problem in his life that they're in a way meddling in. And somehow the glorification of that meddling by listening to Dan Taberski and his producer, who, by the way, has produced Slate podcasts in the past, Henry Molofsky, and has worked on this show in the past, hearing them sit parked outside Richard Simmons' house and chat about why he doesn't have a doorbell is something that might be interesting for 30 seconds, but I don't need it for two minutes. Yeah, I mean, I it's tough, but I think part of what itches at me about this coyly meted out storytelling is... That whether this is an acceptable journalistic approach depends on what the answer is, because if Richard Simmons, who it should be stipulated, is a fascinating character about whom much audio exists. So some of the most pleasurable parts of the show to me are when they go back and describe his history and the extent of his empire and the deep connections he had with people he exercised with and helped throughout the years. And you hear his crazy high pitched voice and his uh, amusing exercise imprecations. And, you know, he's it's it's really he's a fascinating guy independent of whether he had ever disappeared. But as I understand it, the questions about his disappearance are, uh, is he somehow being held captive against his will or has some horrible thing befallen him? Or has he just decided suddenly and abruptly, either through uh, a decision he's made or through some kind of mental break? I mean, he's not de not described as being totally mentally stable either. It strikes me that the journalistic approach you might want to take here is to do your reporting figure out which of those scenarios you think is true. And if you think it, there really is an evil caretaker or whatever, shade the way that you report the story based on which of the outcomes mm -hmm. is true. And those three outcomes are very different. You know, if it turns out that something really nefarious is going on and they crack the case and free Richard Simmons, well, that's a that's a worthy <laughs> outcome. But if, if it's something just sadder and more personal and private, then to like yeah. tramp up the other things when it turns out to be just something more intimate and humane feels a little distasteful to me. Yeah. Let, let me devil's advocate it for a little bit. Um, uh, first of all, it's it is very beautifully produced. And that, I understand, can sometimes inspire distrust. Uh, and also, um, can I just interject, more not as cute and precise as Serial. It's like a little mm -hmm. shaggier, a little lopier in a way mm -hmm. that I found. Right. Like, right. It, it's, it's kind of more puppyish and rangy and less like precision like we've excerpted the exact 42 nanoseconds of our conversation <laughs> right there's not that sense like if i miss right. 10 seconds i'm not going to see how it all fits together it's right. more chatty right and so a part of that uh, uh, emanates from dan taberski the host who i think and creator and writer whose company i find uh, very entertaining um he's fun easygoing funny clever observant person i will also say again in the mode of devil's advocate it appears he had something more than a uh, workout trainer, workout trainee relationship with Simmons. He did go to his class uh, in California, but apparently also went to his home. They had 
uh, before he disappeared. So they had some, it sounds to me like they had something of a social relationship. This is, there's a personal element to this that maybe forgives the intrusive element. Uh, I guess we'll find out as we go forward. The other thing I'll say is in the course of the first episode, what hooked me was, you know, you sort of know that you're going to hear about, you're going to inflate Richard Simmons. I mean, Richard Simmons is turned into this slightly pathetic caricature in most people's minds. He was everywhere in the 1980s and almost everywhere in the 1990s, I suppose. I mean, he was along with Jane Fonda, I think the probably the biggest, uh, you know, personality behind the fitness craze of the 80s. Um, so they inflate him. They remind you that he was everywhere, but not just everywhere, uh, not just the kind of mascot, workout mascot but also a very shrewd businessman. So you get a lot of those numbers. Uh, that's put in perspective, I think, quite successfully. I mean, this is a person who from nothing really created himself into a, a, one of the big workout gurus, made a ton of money doing it. Um, and then also gets into who he is as a human being. He's not just this kind of, you know, terrier that, you know, this yippy kind of, um, you know, self-caricaturing in many ways terrier that that we know. Actually, quite a curious human being that 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 for forty years or more he taught a weekly class, fitness class out in California, and you're as likely to walk out a fast friend of Richard Simmons. Uh, Tabersky takes a, a kind of tour of the stars, bus tour of the stars in Hollywood. Uh, it, one of its favorite stops for all of the tour buses was Richard Simmons, because whereas Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio's mom who lives in the house next to Leo, where she'll hit you with the spray hose. If you get too close, Richard Simmons will like practically invite you in. I mean, apparently he loved interacting with his public. Of course, that raises the question of, well, what if a person is just entirely, you know, uh, realized within their public uh, and media-driven persona, what what's that private person? And I thought that was asked in a way that yes, it's a cliche and and it, it stimulates my curiosity in, in manipulative ways. But it's a really real question. I mean, actually, he turns out he's the kind of guy who would make friends with someone who had lost weight or was trying to lose weight via his, um, you know, almost religious enthusiasm for exercise. You know, and he, he interviews uh, Tabersky interviews this woman in I believe Nebraska in the middle of nowhere who meets Simmons somewhat randomly. Uh, and becomes friends with him and that he calls her at all hours of the night in order to confess what may be dark or complex about his life. I found both of these narratives, Simmons as a legitimate mogul and Simmons as a uh, really complex shades of gray human being. I found both of those completely plausible. Like I bought those and having bought those, I'm over the very first large hurdle, which is why do I care about Richard Simmons in the first place, whether he disappeared or hasn't. So I'm I'm hooked. I'm probably going to stick with it a couple more episodes. I'm definitely going to listen to the whole thing. I mean, I, you know, I, I enjoy the company of the host. It is a fascinating question. When I did encounter tidbits of it on the internet, I was very curious for the answers. And I think those answers are likely to be interesting, whether they're, you know, nefarious or just personal or or sad or any any of the other possibilities we haven't come up with or encountered yet. But I do I just have this like serial mystery fatigue, because I think if you look at the biggest ones over the last few years, like they mostly don't deliver. So I have trust issues, right? Like yeah. so the first season of Serial, we don't we still don't know if Adnan did it. The second season of Serial actually, I think, <laughs> did deliver a satisfying answer to like why did Bo Bergdahl do that? It was it was an act of emotional portraiture rather than an actual mystery. It worked less well for suspense reasons because people sort of knew where he ended up. Um, but I actually thought that season, though it got a bad rap if you followed it through to the end, was pretty interesting. 
Making of a Murderer, I didn't follow all the way through because I found myself troubled by the filmmaker's complete inability to reckon with the fact that it pretty obviously seemed like he did it. And I don't know if they got better at that going uh, along the way, but it just they seemed like not to, I, I, I mean, whatever, I'm speaking now wherever I do not know. But that, that case, uh, as far as I followed, it seemed like it both had complications in the way they told the story and in facts that came out after the first season aired. The serialization and seasonalization of like, horrible murders and crimes of the heart and mm-hmm. deeply sad psychological stories like it's it's kind of icky i don't know I yeah have, but because yeah. none of them work out like a like an alfred hitchcock mystery because it's life right and that i think is 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 maybe right. a, a a little peg that's missing i don't know where this richard simmons show is going i've only heard t- there only are two episodes so far to listen to right but the fact that it's going to end in some way more messily and ambiguously than any possible mystery, fictional mystery ever could seems like in a way it takes it takes away some of that oomph from the right. beginning right so dana i'll just essentially summarize what you just said brilliantly which is that you're faced with and, and what julia said too is you're sort of faced with two choices right when you do these these real life you know true crime uh shows you're either f- faced with honoring the messiness and ambiguity of real life and then they're narratively unsatisfying or you make them narratively satisfying at the cost of probably you know uh, tailoring the the truth to audience expectations in ways that might be fundamentally dishonest i mean it is it seems like such a slam dunk genre in a way and when you when you hit the you know just to throw another metaphor on the barbie but when you you know you hit the mother load you really hit it like serial and making of a murderer were huge hits people want these very badly but um you know uh, real life doesn't really conform to narrative expectation which is why we have fiction all right well i'll give myself the last word um because this isn't real life this is the culture get post all right, the show is called Missing Richard Simmons. It's a uh, podcast. Uh, many of you are probably listening to it already. We are very curious to know not only about what you think about it, but what you think about the genre in general. Do you think some of our um, criticisms of it are, are justified or is it just too yummy to pass up? All right, come to facebook.com slash culturefest and let us know. Moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day nah. What do you have? Stephen, this week I'm endorsing a book that's related to a book that Jody Rosen, our longtime guest in front of the podcast, once endorsed. Do you remember us all cracking up at the name Wolfgang Schivelbush? It was the train <laughs> book. It was about how trains <laughs> changed perception in like 19th century yeah, Britain. Yeah, yeah. And, and America. The Railway Journey is a great book about trains. I read it shortly after that recommendation because it had to do with some of the research I was doing and, and it was absolutely great. And I remember him mentioning at the time, oh, and Chivalbush has this other book that's great about electricity. So addicted as I am to Jody Rosen's <laughs> recommendations, I also read, and it took about a day because it's about 200 pages long, Disenchanted Night, which is the Wolfgang Chivalbush opus on uh, the industrialization of light. So basically what he does with trains in the railway journey, he does with gaslight and electric light in uh, Disenchanted Night. And it's just all about this moment when, you know, humanity went from being bearers of lamps, which we had been since, you know, our caveman days, essentially, that we had fire as our source of light and up to the moment that, you know, we can now switch on overhead lights and have our electricity come invisibly from nowhere. And of course, in between those two stages were all these different stages of, you know, gas and gas being a brand new thing and people being terrified of gas pipes running through the city to their houses and how that changed street life and how it changed, you know, prostitution districts and how it changed theater and the stage and industry. It's just so incredibly smart. Like this guy, Wolfgang Schivelbusch, is he's an independent scholar. He's German. This is they're both translated from German. 
And uh, and he just seems to know everything. He's one of those people who is essentially distilling, you know, m- like m- mounds of scholarly research into this very readable and and lucid prose. And his books are very short and page turners. So Railway Journey is already in there, you know, for, for Jody Rhodes' recommendation in the past. Throw onto your chivalbush pile, Disenchanted Night. It's a great book. <laughs> I'm going to freaking escalate those up the heap now that we've got the double... <laughs> The double stuff endorsement. God, the, uh, now as then, I don't believe this person actually exists. But I'm, we got to have him on the show, Wolfgang. If you're listening, bitte come on our show. <laughs> oh my, um, uh, uh, Julia, what do you have? I'd like to endorse a sandwich, an excellent sandwich. Uh, you can excoriate me for endorsing something local, but I will stipulate that this locality is a very, very convenient one and actually related to our previous conversation. Uh, Near Grand Central Terminal in New York City, there is a food court, or maybe you're supposed to call it a food hall because that will recast it in uh, more favorable light than food court, called Vanderbilt Hall, which is actually not inside the terminal proper. It's like up at, I think, 45th and Park or Lex or something. It's right nearby, very Googleable. In that food hall, there's plenty to eat, there's fancy coffee, there's artisanal ice cream, there's all kinds of food. Uh, you won't go hungry. But if you are there, go to Delaney Chicken. Get the chicken sandwich at Delaney Chicken. If you are anywhere within a 20-block radius of Grand Central Terminal, go to Delaney Chicken and get the chicken sandwich there. I think there's a couple different ones. I think I've gotten the spicy one and the plain one. The bread is like pillowy and soft and like a like a like a cloud puff of a roll. And then the chicken is crunchy and greasy and delicious. And then there's some kind of like pickly thing on top and a spicy sauce. And oh my God, I'm so hungry. I'm going to go to Grand Central Terminal right now and (laughs) get the sandwich. But like, I mean, you know, a a fried chicken sandwich is always a good thing, but this is like a truly exceptional, exceptional fried chicken sandwich. And a lot of people, at least in the New York area, go through Grand Central Terminal at some point or another. So do not sleep on the Delaney Chicken Chicken Sandwich. I wrote it down. I'm afraid not to get it now. Yeah, good. <laughs> I thought you were against proselytizing, Julia. Yeah, no, this is this is what I have faith in. I will travel the world. I will go to feudal Japan and tell them to travel forward in time. You will step uh, on the image of other chicken sandwiches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, step on an image of Chick-fil-A. Um, all right. Well, uh, I'm going to, I'm sort of going to uh, double down on my own uh, ridiculous self caricature. I'm going to do two Hudson Valley related um, uh, endorsements, though I think at least one uh, travels universally, so we'll be fine. But the first is um, I finally got to uh, try <clears throat> something called uh, Suarez Family Brewery. They're a new joint down in Livingston, New York. I've been meaning to get to them. They're not open all the time. If you're going to go, you got to check. But it's basically a tasting room for uh, this 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 young couple who've started a brewery. And uh, it's part of this, like, you know, if you probably heard about these, like, Vermont barns where you need to queue up, like, hours ahead of time in order to get your growler filled. Uh, it's kind of the, you know, upper reaches of the beer fetish, you know, um, coming out of rural America um, these days. But uh, believe the hype. I mean, some people are really doing, like, incredible things with beer right now. Uh, in the Northeast, especially Suarez Family Brewery in Livingston, New York, uh, it, 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 they're making incredible, incredibly good, crisp, interesting, complex beers. They're 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 really worth seeking out. And the tasting room itself is a real, it's an incredibly fun scene. On a Wednesday night when it's open, um, young hipster Hudson Valley shows up in in uh, in numbers, and it's a delight. So um, please please try it if you get a chance. I don't know these people, by the way. This isn't a log roll, but um, and then the second is. 
and this you may have more access to, um, is, uh, you know, what are the two great institutions of journalism in America that are most uh, threatened with extinction? I would say the, the first is um, uh, the local newspaper and local journalism. Um, and the second potentially is uh, is public radio, now that it seems to be in the sights of the Nazis. Um, but uh, these two things come together in a wonderful podcast called The Media Project, which is produced by uh, my local NPR station, WAMC, which now covers quite a bit of territory in Hudson Valley, New York State, uh, up to Vermont, up to the Canadian border. And it uh, what's wonderful about it is essentially it's for people who've made careers in regional or local journalism discussing large national stories and how they ought to be covered and how they cover them. And it's just a very unfamiliar lens. We're really used to tuning into people who who sort of talk about national politics and the national media as national figures themselves or, you know, aspirationally national figures. Whereas instead, these are, these are, uh, they sound to me like quite veteran hands of local and regional journalism. And not only that, but also in the capital region of New York. So they cover, they have a long history of covering very, very important politics, but not at the national level, i.e. Albany and the the capital district. Um, What they aren't in terms of like the superficial cleverness and savvy of people who make media careers in New York or LA, they make up for a thousandfold in wisdom um, and sobriety and perspective. And it's a, really worth seeking out. It actually is one of my favorite half hours uh, of um, media. I listen to it, you know, essentially live or whatever. I listen to it over the radio, but it is available as a podcast. It's called The Media Project uh, from WAMC in New York. It is really worth seeking out. Okay, highly recommended. Cool. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Dana, thanks a lot. Thank you, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out a really magnificent roster of shows at panoply.fm. Uh, our Twitter feed is at Slate Cultfest, and our theme song is written by Oscar-nominated uh, composer Nick Bretel. If he wins, we win. We will be the first Oscar-winning uh, podcast. So uh, root hard this Sunday. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens and Willa Paskin, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you next week.